I think it's always a bad sign if everyone is constantly thinking about the legal line because it means you're really close to it. You shouldn't have to think that hard about, well, will this be a murder? Or is the reason not to do this because I would get in trouble for murder? We would hope you wouldn't go near a murder to begin with for many reasons. Uh, and I do think that's a rough sort of bracing analogy for what responsible journalists do. Hi, I'm Neil Katyal, and welcome to Courtside, a podcast about the Supreme Court and what it means to you. I've argued 50 cases at the U.S. Supreme Court, and I've served as the federal government's top lawyer. But I want the court to come alive for you. Each week, I'm going to discuss a single Supreme Court case with one guest, someone who's not a lawyer and who can translate the case into plain English. So instead of talking about the law with some fusty lawyer named something like Oliver Wendell Holmes, we're going to do it with people like John Mulaney and John Legend and Katie Couric. The Supreme Court is increasingly intruding into every aspect of our lives, and the goal here is to unpack a bit of that this summer. And so we're going to run through the summer. In September, the court comes back into session, and I got to go back to my day job. But if this podcast works out, we'll do it again next summer. By the way, all our episodes are posted over at neilcatial.substack.com, along with a bunch of bonus stuff, including written pieces and discussion threads. You can also support the show there or sign up for free, so each episode at Courtside lands right in your email. That's neilcatial.substack.com, N-E-A-L-K-A-T-Y-A-L.substack.com. On my Substack, each week you'll get access as a subscriber to all sorts of information about the case. I've summarized the case in a three-page document, abridged the actual text of the decision, and provided for you the full decision. All of that is available to you as a subscriber. Each week, I'm going to follow the same format. I'll begin with a distinctive Neil Katyal take on the legal news. I'll then dive into a celebrity guest interview focusing on a single Supreme Court case. And then, as a bonus for subscribers, I'll also have some softer discussion about performance, creativity, resilience, and what makes each of our amazing guests tick. Today's legal news is pretty straightforward, the Donald Trump indictment for stealing documents at Mar-a-Lago. I want to do a deep dive into dispelling a prominent Donald Trump talking point, that he did the same thing as Hillary Clinton. The short answer? He didn't. Not even close. So Donald Trump is now facing a second indictment, this time by the federal government in Florida. He was, as you all know, previously indicted by a local prosecutor in New York for falsifying business records. An indictment is the formal bringing of criminal charges signed off on by a grand jury of a defendant's peers. Donald Trump is now twice indicted, twice impeached, and now twice arrested. The most important thing, if you're trying to get your mind around this news, is for you to read the indictment for yourself. I've heard lots of nonsense over the last week from some members of the Republican Party. Frankly, they sound like a book club for people who haven't read the book. The indictment is far more detailed than the basic bare-bones indictments that prosecutors are required to file. An indictment with this level of detail about the alleged crimes is what we call a speaking indictment. And let me tell you, this indictment speaks loud and clear. The prosecutors have really damning evidence against Donald Trump, and a lot of it at that. 
I think the most notable part of this indictment is that so much of it is told through Donald Trump's own words. It lists damaging statement after damaging statement before, during, and after he was subpoenaed for the information. In many ways, Trump's big mouth is what ultimately did him in. Normally at the indictment stage, I'd caution you and say, look, it's hard to know the extent of the prosecution's case and what the possible defenses would be. But this indictment is so thorough and so profoundly bad for Trump, I'm not really sure how he can defend himself. He's obviously entitled to the presumption of innocence, as all criminal defendants are under our system. But at this point, I haven't heard any defense from Trump that I think will hold up. In court, you can't send someone to the witness stand screaming about Hillary's email or Joe Biden's garage. You can't start making up mind declassification powers that don't exist. Those defenses may work well enough for Trump's base, but they're not going to work in front of a jury. Now I want to spend a little time on the main Donald Trump talking point, that Hillary Clinton did the same thing. It's obviously ironic, as Trump's entire campaign was lock her up in 2015 and 2016 for her mishandling of emails when she was Secretary of State. As some of you know, I'm a huge believer in karma, I'm a Hindu, and Donald Trump's is coming around. As the great legal scholar Taylor Swift puts it, karma's on your scent like a bounty hunter, karma's gonna track you down. And it sure is for Donald Trump. I want to take this on the merits, Trump's claim that Hillary Clinton's case is the same as his. Does the non-indictment of Hillary Clinton mean Trump shouldn't be indicted? When James Comey explained why the FBI chose not to recommend charges for Hillary Clinton, he listed a number of factors that counseled against charging her, like the fact that she didn't intentionally mishandle documents and didn't obstruct the investigation. But instead of using that list of reasons as a model for avoiding charges, Trump used them as his own personal checklist for how to handle classified documents and subsequently interfering with the government's recovery of them. So when you boil it down, there were five factors that counseled against charging Hillary Clinton. First, the lack of fully classified documents that were marked as such. Second, the lack of any intentional mishandling of the documents. Third, the lack of any other intentional misconduct. Fourth, the lack of disloyalty to the United States. And five, the lack of efforts to obstruct justice. It's those five factors that are the very reason that Trump was ultimately charged. The decision not to seek charges was reviewed by the Justice Department's Inspector General. Now that's an independent person. The inspector general wrote a report about the investigation, which found that political bias didn't affect it. And the inspector general said he supported the decision not to prosecute Clinton. The report found that the FBI and DOJ employees were unanimous in recommending against charges. In the Clinton investigation, the inspector general concluded, quote, There was no evidence that the senders or former Secretary Clinton believed or were aware at the time that the emails contained classified information. That is because the classified information, which was in a whopping total of three emails, was not clearly marked as such. And there was no decision on Secretary Clinton's part to hide the information 
or willfully retain it after being asked to return it. By contrast, here we have a special counsel who is appointed to operate independently and without bias, and that person, Jack Smith, reached just the opposite conclusion with respect to Donald Trump's handling of classified information. Now, special counsels are independent of the Attorney General, independent of Joe Biden. I can tell you more about that than almost anyone since one of my first jobs at the Justice Department when I was a young staffer was to write the rules for special counsel appointments over 20 years ago. And in a future episode of Courtside with John Mulaney, the brilliant comedian, we're going to go into detail about special counsels. But for now, I think it's enough to understand that the special counsel operated independently of Joe Biden, independently of Merrick Garland, and reached this conclusion. There's also an important timing issue. Hillary Clinton used her personal email server for convenience during her tenure as Secretary of State. As a result, she had the security clearances to view and handle any classified documents transmitted on that server, even if she didn't follow the proper procedure when doing so. Trump, by contrast, kept on to these classified documents after he left office, after his security clearances had lapsed. He didn't have the clearance to retain and declassify those documents, but he held on to them anyway. Finally, I think it's important to remember that it's not just the special counsel, but Donald Trump's own former cabinet officials who agree with the Jack Smith indictment. After reading the indictment, Many of Trump's own cabinet have argued that no reasonable prosecutor could refuse to bring charges against Donald Trump. Even Bill Barr, his former attorney general, who did, you know, twisted himself in gymnastics to try and clear Trump of the Russia investigation. This is what Bill Barr said, quote, if even half of the indictment is true, then he's toast. Vice President Pence said Trump looked guilty. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, the same. Former Trump Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney, former Chief of Staff John Kelly, all saying the same thing. Former National Security Advisor to Donald Trump John Bolton, again, the same thing. It's like Donald Trump's entire cabinet. This can't be dismissed. And it's not just former government officials. Donald Trump lost the National Review, which said this was serious. He lost conservative commentator Ed Whelan, he lost Trey Gowdy, former congressman. He even lost his own former lawyer, Ty Cobb. All of this is to say that I don't think the Hillary Rodham Clinton precedent is nearly the defense that Donald Trump thinks it is. New York Times Company petitioner versus L.B. Sullivan. Mr. Wexler? Mr. Chief Justice, may I please the court? This week, we're going to discuss New York Times versus Sullivan a groundbreaking 1964 case about freedom of the press and speech. And while I'm avoiding lawyers as guests, I couldn't resist the opportunity to break that rule here and invite Ari Melbourne to the show. Ari has a unique perspective. He was a lawyer at a top law firm practicing First Amendment law, but now he's on the other side of that as one of the most brilliant anchors on MSNBC, where he's had to think about freedom of the press and the threats posed by libel suits akin to that with Fox and Dominion. Ari, it is such a privilege to have you on the show. You're host of The Beat on MSNBC, which is often the network's top show, but you are way more than that. You're a brilliant lawyer. You've worked at one of New York's very top blue chip law firms, 
and you have a unique knack for explaining complex legal subjects. And honestly, I've been privileged to be your partner in crime for a long time now. And in fact, when I was conceiving of Courtside, I wanted it to be non-lawyers each week as guests precisely because I wanted the Supreme Court to come alive for people who don't have law degrees. So I really just wanted to explain how the Supreme Court impacts Americans' daily lives. And lawyers tend to be, well, pretty bad at that. And there's one notable exception, and that's you, because I've watched you now for six years, and you do this better than anyone. So you're going to be my one lawyer guest in season one, and it's for the best of reasons. So welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Neil. Uh, Very kind words. So many people appreciate what you do and your contribution, so that means extra. And I'm happy uh, to be the exception. (laughs) So today we're talking about New York Times versus Sullivan. That's a 1964 Supreme Court ruling that expanded the freedom of the press and freedom of speech really on an extraordinary scale. And there is no one better than you to talk about this, not just because it's a complex constitutional matter, but it's a case that I suspect impacts how you do your job every day. It's at the heart of the Fox Dominion lawsuit that was just settled for hundreds of millions of dollars. So before we dive into the case, can you just give me a little background on it? What happened in there? Yeah, New York Times versus Sullivan is the baseline fundamental case for the First Amendment's application to press freedom. Uh, And while we know there are other areas that come up, for example, Pentagon Papers or where the government is trying to, say, prevent publication of something, I think it's fair to say that Sullivan is the key First Amendment case most of the time because most people uh, deal with things they don't like in the press by threatening to sue or suing. And this is what sets the high bar. Anyone who followed the Fox case uh, or other recent challenges may have heard a lot about, boy, there's this high bar uh, because we have these robust protections. This is the case that establishes that it grew out of an ad by civil rights leaders that was run in the New York Times that basically a police leader viewed as libeling them and singling them out, even though it it didn't even actually name Sullivan. And it went all the way to the Supreme Court and established that higher bar, that new rule that you would need actual malice proven in addition to falsity, in addition to some false claim um, to actually win a libel judgment against public, uh, excuse me, against Uh, someone in the press discussing or reporting on public officials. Right. So you've got this ad that runs. This is 1960 and it's Alabama. And this ad basically arguably maligns the police. And it's an ad run by civil rights organizations. And so the police sues saying, hey, this causes libel. This is libel to us. It's a lie. And it's hurting our reputation. And it goes to a jury. A jury finds the New York Times guilty under Alabama state law and gives $500,000 in damages. And that's what the that's what the New York Times brings to the Supreme Court. And you're absolutely right. You say it's a, you know, it's a, the Supreme Court issues the sweeping ruling. It's a unanimous decision. And it says that in order to hold someone guilty of libel, there's got to be actual malice. So, so what is that exactly? Yeah. So actual malice is the standard where, uh, basically someone has the actual malice or negative intent, uh, the bias and beyond against an official, or they have completely reckless disregard for the truth. So, if you take that out of, as you were saying earlier, Neil, if we take that out of legal jargon, it's basically the idea that this was not an honest mistake or some other part of the process that would just happen, but rather 
you could actually prove, meaning you need evidence, facts, testimony to prove that the publisher, in this case, the Times of an ad, where you could imagine as a journalist, if you want to personalize it, actually set out either to be malicious or with such reckless disregard for the facts. Um, and, and that is an important standard because while we can talk more about whether every journalist gets uh, uh, trained on this, it creates a structure and a real-world legal backstop that then most uh, conventional or traditional press outlets follow. Yeah. So, okay. So that's what the uh, majority opinion, it's unanimous by Justice Brennan, Brennan says. And then there are these two concurrences by Justice Black and by Justice Goldberg. I mean, first of all, what, what is a concurrence? And then what are these folks saying? Yeah. So this is a unanimous opinion. As you know, from all the cases you've argued for the Supreme Court, everyone focuses on the ruling. What is the ruling? Can you count to five? Uh, these concurrences are something that we study in, in law and law school, but don't always make as big a difference. But they are an additional or distinguishing argument from a justice who's not saying no, but they are saying yes and or here's something else we should consider. And that matters in law because although there's great and understandable cynicism and skepticism about the current court, if you do view law as an actual process or struggle to get uh, somewhere, and you imagine, say, an example where you don't think maybe they're as corrupt or partisan, just struggling to understand medical science or AI, the concurrence today might become uh, an important baseline or leap for the court later. Dissents also sometimes can do that, and, and we can talk about that. But these concurrences were basically other justices in a unanimous opinion saying, we should go even farther. So they're kind of saying, yes, high bar, and why are we even talking about this concept of libel against the government? If nothing else, we were founded by these revolutionaries who believed you had to have tools against the government, a government that can arrest, detain, execute, start wars, will be checked by what? Words, protests, peaceful demonstrations. The idea that you could encroach further on the freedom of those words was itself kind of anathema or not even really logical, I think, to those justices in the concurrence. And I've always found that interesting because I both practiced First Amendment litigation uh, on behalf of journalists and others in private practice. And now, of course, I am a journalist, go to work every day in a newsroom. And the concurrence's context is interesting, but I don't believe it has a great following, Neil. I mean, I'm curious what you what you would say, but the idea that you could just never go past the line for any public official is not something that I, I think has taken root especially in the modern internet era where we see the other side of this, which is what can you get away with is itself a problem. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Ari. So, I mean, what these two concurrences say basically is that no actual malice standard, you can just never sue a publisher for any sort of speech that deals with public affairs. So Justice Black says, quote, an unconditional right to say what one pleases about public affairs is the minimum guarantee of the First Amendment. And Justice Black says something similar. And if anything, and we'll talk later about this, the, the kind of the justices on the court, at least some of them are moving very much in the opposite direction. But I don't see any support really for the Black Goldberg uh, model now, because it would mean the press could basically say anything about a public official, no matter how scurrilous and, uh, you know, and have no consequence whatsoever. So you had said something really interesting to me, which is, you know, as a journalist now, you're taking what you used to do as a lawyer and living it. So so how does it matter to you? Like what, you know, are you 
when you're, you know, about to do a show and, you know, one of your researcher hands you this thing and it looks, huh, really? Is that really what that government official did? Are you thinking about this? How does it work? Yeah, it's a deep question because we talk so much about law in current politics. And I think that's partly a reflection of the problems in our current politics. I mean, some quantum of people may always be likely to break the law, but the levels of lawbreaking and corruption in the Trump era and beyond are quite well known. And so I think it's always a bad sign if everyone is constantly thinking about the legal line, because it means you're really close to it. So day to day, you shouldn't have to think that hard about, well, will this be a murder? Or is the reason not to do this because I would get in trouble for murder? We would hope you wouldn't go near a murder to begin with for many reasons. Uh, And I do think that's a rough sort of bracing analogy for what responsible journalists do. You shouldn't be really near the line of, could we be sued or sued out of existence or wipe out an entire year of work and and profits if you're using a business model uh, by this, okay, let's not do it. There should be many hurdles before that. Having said that, I think that there are norms and cultural habits that come out of these rules. And you can look at that in areas like copyright, artistry, uh, employment law. So I think those cultural norms have gelled. And so I think journalists, for example, have been trained a whole generation on the difference between government and public figures and private citizens. So I don't think most reporters in a well-run newsroom start that conversation from scratch. I think the Sullivan standard and later cases in that progeny have very clearly demarcated that difference. There's also ethical aspects, because if someone becomes a, a news story because their child was shot in school, we don't immediately subject them to the same approach as a U.S. senator. And I think we can all at a gut level understand that. So day to day, there are aspects of the boundaries and the rules of, of Sullivan that are explicit if you're actually looking at, wait a minute, would we get in trouble? And implicit, which is how you're trained and raised. I will say to get into specifics, there are certain stories that we just do, breaking stories, we just do them. If someone turns on MSNBC and they say Neil, they see Neil talking to me or Nicole, and the story just broke, like obviously, you know, we didn't run it by any lawyers. We're trying to be responsible. We're live, breaking. Other stories that might be straightforward, same thing. When we deal with, for example, cases involving a trial, police misconduct, high level government allegations, those are almost always run through our standards and legal before they make air. And that's another area where if we don't think of it, those parties may say, here's our questions. Let's make sure we're in line with this. So I think that both implicit and explicit, it is a part of any responsible newsroom. I love that answer. It's so sophisticated. And this point about, you know, you can have a legal decision and it has a kind of cultural impact and a kind of meta impact on the way in which industry does its jobs is so right. You mentioned copyright later in the podcast. I'm going to bring on Jeff Koons, um, one of the world's greatest living artists, and Aaron Desner, one of the greatest musicians, to talk about exactly that question about like fair use and what is a zone for uh, doing stuff, what bumps up against the law. Neil, you got to do me one favor. You got to double check. Does Jeff know the Jay-Z line, Jeff Koons balloons, I just want to blow up? I will check it out for you, man. Absolutely. I feel like if you're an artist, you you hear about it. I'm always curious who hears about it because we asked Tom Hanks about some stuff recently and he didn't even know about it. So do me that favor. Check with Jeff. Absolutely. It's happening. Okay. A quick break here to say that this episode of Courtside with Ari Melber is entirely free. 
The full versions of most episodes will only be available to paying subscribers, and I'm going to be donating all profits to charity. But seeing that this is our first show, here you go. It's all for free. You can sign up at neilcatial.substack.com at no cost, and everything will land right in your inbox. And you can also support the show there. You might have noticed that you haven't been forced to skip through ads. That's because we're forging a different model for podcasting here. Courtside is entirely supported by listeners. Please consider joining us at neilcatial.substack.com. That's N-E-A-L-K-A-T-Y-A-L.substack.com. So when we talk about the cultural impact, though, with respect to libel and defamation and what we're talking about here, Ari, I am curious, like, you know, we've obviously had four years of a former president who loved to use the courts offensively, loved to threaten at least to use the courts. Um, so when you have someone like that, a very litigious public figure, does that change at all how you do your job? Are you worried then about the lawsuit in a way that you didn't have to be when it was Obama? I think practically the answer depends a lot on where you work. I think if you work for a large company with a large legal corporate department and outside counsel when needed, um, you're probably not materially affected by that, except that if you do get sued a lot, it's still a, it's still a nuisance, still takes up time, it still becomes a headline. But I doubt the day-to-day it affects you that much. However, if you work at a smaller outlet, I think it could have a huge impact because it could eat up just dealing with it a chunk of your legal fees. And there are mechanisms in American law, specifically in First Amendment, to try to lessen that, to have earlier dismissal. Those alleviate part of it, but they don't necessarily help everyone. Again, if you're a small outlet and even large outlets, I mean, in a very different example that was much more controversial, there was an outlet, Gawker, people may remember, that was basically sued out of existence because it was losing these kinds of cases. Now, I will say there was a big difference. For example, the heart of that case was a sex tape with allegations that it was secretly made. And so many people would say that's not the best example to defend original reporting. But I raise it not to say it's the same, but to say to your question, can you be sued out of existence through some of these mechanisms? Yes. And so if you're not part of a large company that has the tradition of, of fighting and paying for these suits, at simply the level of does it affect you? Of course, um, because it can be an existential threat. And so I think that really depends on where you work. And a shout out to local reporters. You know, I've done writing, what we used to call blogging. I've done local, I've been in out local outlets where you, they give you a couple hundred bucks for the piece. And now I'm obviously affiliated with a very large, uh, pretty well-funded news corporation. But we need local reporters. We need independent citizen journalists. We don't want, I, th- I don't think, a system where it is, it is First Amendment robust freedom for people who are lucky enough to work for really large corporations and, and diminish for everyone else. And we, and I always try to make a point of this on MSNBC when we report, we're, we, yes, we, we use our own reporters and we use the New York Times, but we also draw on the work of local reporters at small outlets, sometimes locally owned newspapers who have a lot less budgeting room. Yeah. So there's all sorts of kind of nuisance lawsuits that can be filed against both small and large media organizations. Absolutely, Ari. But isn't it fair to say that this decision we're talking about today, New York Times versus Sullivan, stands as a kind of bulwark to stop the chilling effect of these lawsuits? It won't work perfectly, of course, because anyone can file a lawsuit for anything. But what the Supreme Court is basically saying is, boy, before you sue a journalist, you've got to have 
really the goods. You got to show that they were actually trying to harm someone and had a, or at least a reckless disregard of the truth. Exactly. And so this is a bit of an arcane legal point, but here we are on, on Neil's podcast. When we watch courtroom dramas, when we see it in movies, we're always seeing the trial, right? When we watch or see the audio from a Neil hearing, right? We're watching you talk to the Supreme Court. But we all have to remember, trials are the rarest thing in the system. When the bar is this high, for the substantive reasons we already discussed, it also creates a context in the Supreme Court, more than any other institutions intimately familiar with this and the procedural aspects, it creates a context where you don't need a trial um, for most of these things. The bar is really high. And if you're someone who's trying to say, oh, you're Ted Cruz and you feel you want to file this suit because you're angry or you think you can make a point, um, if you don't have the goods, you will be losing long before a trial is necessary. Yeah. And let me ask you, Ari, about maybe the most high profile example of a libel case that didn't result in a trial. And that is the recent Dominion Fox case, which settled before the trial. And Dominion accused Fox of airing blatantly false statements about its voting machines. I mean, the reporters and guests on Fox claimed that Dominion had ties to the Venezuelan president, Hugo Chavez, who happened to be dead at the time. And they claimed that Dominion rigged the 2020 election. So uh, they were filing this lawsuit against a media organization, against Fox. And, you know, I'm curious, first of all, just like, you know, as a journalist, you looked at that and obviously, you know, you have, I think, a pretty different perspective than many people on Fox. But did the lawsuit cause you any heartburn? Did you think about it and say, hmm, this could be bad for our industry? It's a great question. And the facts of that case did not concern me. And I don't think most real journalists, including many strongly conservative journalists, go anywhere near uh, what the evidence showed in that case. Now, as a lawyer, you're always concerned about you move the line, right? If you think about it as an error rate, you move the line and you say, well, that means there's still going to be 10% on either side of that line. You move it uh, in different hands in a different argument. Is this going to be misused as, as a potential precedent? And that's a fair open question. But the underlying facts showed that these people knowingly lied America into an insurrection. And that's another case where I believe that the external dynamics of the last two years in January 6th also contributed to how tough an uphill battle was going to be for Fox, even though technically that wasn't an aspect of the case. I mean, you certainly don't need to prove a lick. Um, but I do think it hurt them. And I think it hurt them with the judge and the sort of reality-based people that were going to be empowered to decide their fate. I also think that the Fox case had many incriminating pieces of evidence about not just a journalist having doubts before air. I mean, you could have a good faith debate in the newsroom about, are we sure? How sure? Somebody says, I don't know. Somebody tells a joke. It goes back and forth and you run it and take it out of context or by the most zealous lawyer and present it to a jury that might not know how these conversations go. They might see bad faith where it, it didn't exist. And that could apply to a Fox or any newsroom, right? This wasn't that. This was, it struck me as people writing down in real time, Tucker Carlson and others, the whole thing is bullshit. Obviously Biden won. That's up here, up high. Then you have these subset lies. That's the big lie as they call it, right? Or whatever you want to call it. But obviously Biden won. And now underneath that are these even more extreme lies about Venezuela, etc. So I just don't think, again, having been around these these jobs, 
I don't think you're going to find that level of malevolence, maliciousness, and sheer operating daily deceit uh, in most newsrooms, including, say, the Wall Street Journal editorial board, which has very conservative pieces that, best I can tell, are are fact-checked. And when they raise conspiracy theories, which, as a reader, I could say, I wish they didn't, they do it in a journalistic way, which is to say, we don't know whether it's true when Mr. Trump says X, blah, blah, blah. Okay, that's still different than feeding the lies that, that some were on Fox. Yeah, but um, how do you deal then, Ari, with the kind of claim that now at least a couple of justices on the Supreme Court are making that this is actually media lies are rampant now? So Justice Gorsuch says New York Times versus Sullivan is, quote, evolved into an ironclad subsidy for the publication of falsehoods by means and on a scale previously unimaginable. And Justice Clarence Thomas has said something similar, calling for the decision to be revisited. And Larry Silberman, before he passed away, one of our nation's most prominent court of appeals judges, said the same thing. So you've got people who are saying, actually, what these Dominion allegations are, aren't just about Fox, they're about the media generally. Yeah, I think it's really striking. It reminds me of when the late Justice Scalia referenced a so-called cornhusker kickback in an opinion that wasn't in record evidence. As you know, Neil, these are supposed to be very clear and tight rules. And so when the justices depart from them, I can only interpret it as a kind of personal view or personal their personal media habits, which they're entitled to have personally, but of course they're not supposed to be part of the record. And so my experience, this is my like when I look at the internet, right? I love the internet. It's a really interesting space for people working in our fields. But a lot of the internet is a book club for people who haven't read the book. And when you keep that in mind, it's less aggravating because you realize the book is just the start of the conversation to then say whatever they already think or project things. And then it's like, because I go to dinner parties and people want to talk to me about media and I can tell very quickly what media they do and don't consume. So when they start talking about the stuff they don't consume, and let me be very clear, equal opportunity. I've seen people who are conservative do this. I've seen people who are liberal do this. I've seen liberals talk to me about Joe Rogan podcast. And I say, when's the last one you listened to? And they, I don't listen to it. After a five-minute speech about Joe Rogan. So we're not talking about Joe Rogan. We're talking about <laughs> how he makes you feel or maybe a tiny clip. And that's okay. It's just you didn't read the book. And so justices are also human beings. And that's why the record evidence rules are important. Because if you start just discarding the, the search based on evidence, now you're just doing your projection. And I, I think there's a lot of that. Because to get to the core of your question... Of course, there are mistakes in media. And of course, there's narrative bias and confirmation bias, all the things we've learned about. But most serious newsrooms in print and television have standards, have legal. They go through the process I've told you about. And most of their stuff is not constantly being corrected and fixed. And that's just a fact. They make other types of mistakes. They have bias. We could talk about the anti-civil rights bias of the media in a certain decade and how that would change now and marriage equality and trans rights. Of course, we can have that sophisticated discussion. But are people getting up in the morning and going, how do I lie or whatever Thomas is implying? No, not in most places. And ironically, or perhaps with projection, where we do see it right now, and this may change on my program, I'm careful to talk about how you can't just put all the problems on one side. But right now, Donald Trump is leading a political movement that is based on and integrated with knowing lying. That's why the fact checking doesn't politically have a lot of resonance, because his followers think that lying is power. It is stunting. It is flexing. To get away with your lies shows that you're quote unquote macho or alpha or whatever. And so in this environment, it's not a false equivalence 
analysis. It's just not. I mean, there are mistakes here and there, but no, I think that the problem is more urgent on the right. Fox is the one that got caught in court. And there's a political movement that not only allows, but celebrates. Let me take the two halves of that long answer and ask you a question about it. So the second half was Donald Trump's campaign is built on this kind of lying model. And the first part is about how personal views impact one's kind of views on the law, on, on, on everything. And, you know, you're the grandson of Holocaust survivors. You've talked to me very movingly about this in the past. Um, do you think there's a way in which your family history, history impacts how you think about New York Times versus Sullivan? Because if you think about what Hitler did in the 1930s, he quashed all dissent. He eliminated freedom of the press. He sets up a sprawling network of propaganda. Any kind of relationship between your family history and how you think about speech? You know, it's a deep question. I don't think I've ever been asked that on TV. I do think that the way my parents raised me and our larger family history is tied to my understanding of the world, like how bad things can get, how quickly things can get out of control, tyranny as the real word, not the rhetoric. And so I'm sure that plays into my notions of how I look at the world and social justice. As a journalist, I really do try not to be overly committed to certain stories just because they hit with me. I, I kind of feel like my job is the opposite. So like to pick a less loaded example, I'm from Seattle. So if I'm clicking around and I see something about Seattle, it's going to interest me more than another city. But I don't think it's my job because I have a national news show to do a ton of extra Seattle in the news bucket, if you will. Although it's not a secret I'm from Seattle and it's sooner or later, I'm sure there are ways where people be like, oh man, that clearly showed. So yeah, with my family, I mean, my on my father's side, my grandmother, Lisa Melbourne, her husband, Norbert, were in Germany and they fled as refugees. And they went first to Jerusalem and then over a decade later to the United States. So they were very literal refugees fleeing. And all of her siblings were murdered in the Holocaust, their entire family. So I'm sure, again, I haven't given this exact question a ton of thought, but I'm sure that gives you a keen sense of how bad it can get. And then as a student of history, right, because I went to school and law school, people forget is it's laws, but it's also how were these laws passed that you get rooted in, in what was going on at the time, right? Uh, what Congress was doing right after World War II is a context, right? And I do think that if you understand that history at all, and again, I'm not here as your historian, but propaganda is central um, to authoritarian movements for all the obvious reasons. And that's true in many regions. But I think, yes, the link of propaganda, which is to create a system whereby the government power is unquestioned because it is always right. It's on your side. It's tribally here for you, the in-group. There's out-groups. And that links with hate. Um, yeah, I think a keen understanding of that model is going to affect how much you care about these issues, I would guess. Let me ask you this on the other side, on a much lighter note. Sure, um, we can get lighter I... than the Holocaust. You know, why not? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, so... I hear you that you want to avoid, you know, things of personal interest when you're doing your reporting. But one of the things I love about the beat is that you incorporate hip hop, something I know you love, into the news segments. Maybe one of your more distinctive features. Um, why are you doing that? What are you doing with these lyrics? What do you What do you hope to accomplish? Well, so that's funny because yeah, that's me being myself. So there's this difference, right? I'm always going to be trying to be me within reason, which is. That thing of when you're on TV, like camera doesn't lie, it's live TV, like good luck if you're trying to be somebody else for years, right? I'm live every night. I'm talking to you today, live tonight. So that is how I think and talk and my passion, right? So yes, I will say the show has, probably has more music in it 
than a typical news broadcast. But but I don't view that as like obviously just to com- complete the distinction. I don't view that as like first story of the show tonight as I'm like, yo, national news, the Drake album dropped. That's bigger than Washington. Like, yo, right. Kendrick and Baby Keem put out this you know video this weekend. No, you always integrate it yeah. so beautifully. I'm kind of like my jaw is often on the floor when I'm like, how did you do that? Right. Can you do that for me for New York Times versus Sullivan? You gotta I got one for Sullivan because I was thinking about it for you. So that that I had a minute to think about. But yeah, to, to answer the question, like I was doing that like what's so funny, Neil, is like in high school I would do that. Like Busta Rhymes was big in the nineties and I'd be in class or something. I'd be like, yo, yeah, well, like Busta said, like, I make sure everything remains raw. And people would look over and be like, and then people would be like, stop. And I'd be like, no, but this was like how it was. And then like, because I had a career that wasn't always in television, I went on with my life. So the fact that to, to run it back around, like in my late thirties, it became part of this. My, my friends from home are just like, I can't believe this is being affirmed. Like we laugh about it, and, but they're like, can't believe it. So I always... I've always been interested in words, all words. I mean, I grew up right in a household with novels, nonfiction, Shakespeare, re- more than one newspaper. To me, hip hop was always poetry as w- the words and the power in that. So I always thought about it that way. On a serious note, you know, you were talking about influences, like going to high school in the 90s, there was no, I mean, internet existed, but you weren't on it daily. Obviously, people didn't have personal phones. There was like a desktop at home, but it wasn't like a lot of internet to read. It wasn't that moment yet. And so listening to Tupac discuss the criminal justice system made me feel like I was getting an education outside of what I was being told in school. And I went to a diverse public high school where Quincy Jones and Jimi Hendrix went that was already, you know, a pretty open-minded high school. And even by that standard, it was like, nah, it's, there's more to the story than that. So that informed me. So then to have someone come around, you know, and say, like, uh, how is this part of covering police brutality or the government or racism? I'm like, how is it not? Uh, and many generations feel that way, right? Because Bob Dylan, for an early generation, was also excavating issues that weren't always uh, explored. So to me, that's how that always felt. There's a fun, casual side to it because it's the passion, and then there's the serious side. For Sullivan, I was just thinking about one of Jay-Z's great B-sides. This isn't like as known a song. It's called Ignorant Shit. And he's talking about basically how to be informed and have literacy and be skeptical and how there's all these actors and there's all this crap and you really have to be thoughtful. And he kind of distinguishes between rappers who are honest and rappers who are actors. And he starts with a scene that's, uh, the imagery is him quoting or, or paying homage to a scene from De Niro and Raging Bull. And he says, they're all actors looking at themselves in the mirror backwards, can't even face themselves, don't fear no rappers. They're all weirdos, De Niro's in practice. So don't believe everything your earlobe captures. It's mostly backwards. Unless it happens to be as accurate as me and everything said in song you happen to see, then actually believe half of what you see, none of what you hear, even if it's spat by me. Woo. Right? I always love that for literacy because he's playing with different concepts. It's poetic license. And he's even telling you, like, believe me, I'm more real than these actors. But don't believe everything you hear from me either because you got to go out with multiple sources. My jaw's on the ground again. Um, the last question for you, Ari. As you think about the similarities between musicians and Supreme Court justices, there's actually a lot more in common that might be apparent at first. So both, of course, are kind of writing for a living. To be successful, they both have to really leverage rhetoric and language yeah. to their advantage. Do you think that the justices can learn anything from song lyrics and 
Do you think musicians and artists can learn from the Supreme Court? Absolutely, yes, in both directions. It's an interesting question um, because you're you're really getting into the, the root of it. Like we hear this phrase, words have power, and we know that, but we also can be quite sloppy with our words and not always know what that means. The architecture, the building blocks of court opinions, which affect our lives, are are delivered in words. The results are more than words, so those words have very literal power, not just other types of influence. But, you know, there are other aspects of life that are more physical, like an engineer might open or close a bridge by knowledgeably meeting with the team, and then someone physically closes the bridge or whatever. With the court, something as serious as someone awaiting execution, it is the words on the paper and their clear and understood meaning that then controls life and death. So I don't think most parts of society function as tightly uh, on the on the actual execution power of words. And so the justices at their best are hopefully ruling with evidence, facts, and justice in mind, not personal enrichment politics or PR. And so uh, Again, it's always compared to what? Uh, the current court is under scrutiny for many reasons I think people know, um, and I've covered many of those problems on my show, and that's a whole podcast in and of itself. On the other hand, the founders created an institution that, unlike the political branches, is not subject to a constant popularity content, is not subject to negotiating only a messy compromise, right, which in the budget might be the best we can do, but actually sometimes on its best days, uses these words to tell us not a compromise, although that happens, but this is what justice is. And that's why you go from, oh, people aren't allowed to marry if they want to marry someone of the same gender, who cares, to, nope, the court has used its words, evidence, and thoughts to create a new baseline um, to advance justice and equality. And so they do the fact that they do that through words and take words seriously is really striking. On the artistry, you know, great artists use words and passion to help us better understand ourselves and the world around us and sometimes whether we want to change it. And that's why I've always thought art is so fundamental to civilization. And so it's funny because I was, you know, look at the war, the recent Warhol ruling where I think the court didn't, in my view, do its best. And I thought it got caught up on sort of other mechanisms to resolve it, but paid less attention to the artistry. And what the court can learn from artists is that even when you need rules, regulations, uniform standards, all the things you actually need, how is this going to be applied in the real world 10 years from now? Um, they also have to, in some way, keep in mind that this is still a society that we're governing. And that means that you have to have some place to understand the human condition, which is a lot of what life is about and what makes life worth living. And I think artists, the reason why artists connect with us so much, it's all generational. I mean, I have people come up to me and they say, oh, I'm learning about the rappers from you. But, you know, for me, it's Dylan. For me, it's Aretha. And I'm like, dope. Like, that's great. But I promise you for this 20-year-old who might like Aretha, it could be City Girls. And it's hitting them the same way. It's making them think about what it means to be alive and what it means to have dignity. And what great art does, and, and hopefully this is a fitting conclusion, is because it makes us feel more alive and human, it can remind us of our common humanity. And when we have that, we're less likely to be in our boxes, diminish people by stupid categories. Um, that's why, I, I mean, I've been to great inaugurations where I'm like, damn, okay, I'm feeling a little patriotic. Um, but they've never been as amazing and diverse as the greatest concerts I've been to. Because you go to Jazz Fest in New Orleans, and there are people there from 90 years old, no exaggeration, to the kid. And no barriers. Everybody's coming from wherever they're coming from, and we're together, and you're like, 
well, if music can do this, yeah, maybe there's something that the rest of us could take from this for the type of society we want. It's such a beautiful statement, Ari, about the power of art. And it does remind me of the Supreme Court at at its best, because whether it's marriage equality or you go all the way back to the Bank of the United States case from 1819, Chief Justice Marshall's opening words are about how the court is about our common humanity. It's about bringing us together as Americans. And of course, it hasn't always done that in its history, but that's the goal. And so I can't thank you enough for really spending some time with us today and talking about the court, talking about art, talking about life, and of course, talking about New York Times versus Sullivan. So thanks so much, Ari. Thank you, Neil. Stop over at neilcatial.substack.com to support the show. And there you'll find all the episodes, written pieces, and bonus material. And you can sign up so you don't miss anything. That's neilkatyal.substack.com n-e-a-l-k-a-t-y-a-l.substack.com The music for the show was composed by the artists Dawson Hallow and Ronnie Barhadas. Production services are provided by J.E. Peterson and Ness Smith Savadoff at Voltage. Thank you for listening, and I'll have a new episode of Courtside for you next week. <laughs>